usually talk about the performance of your design. It's not a performance only to generate the space for people to live in, but it's a performance where you as an architect, basically you design the climate, you design the water cycle, and that's also the impact that you have because architects are not trained to, to consciously design these impacts. But this is, I think, what we need to change in, in now, uh, in what we call the Anthropocene, realizing that we are collectively geological engineers who influence the climate, who influ influence water cycles on a global scale. And therefore, we need to become much more aware and much more responsible. Welcome to Co-Water Voice. We voice critical views and marginalize aspirations within the water development sector. CoWater is a postdoctoral research program funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program, Marie Skodowska Curie Action. CoWater examines conflicts over water resources and water territories and seeks to understand the conditions of possibility for turning conflicts into civil society co production. I am Pratimi Vidyatmi Putri, the University of Kassel in Witzenhausen. This is the third season of Co-Water Voice. Let's talk about water in the city, urban water and the contestations around it. I have been questioning the impacts of modernity on the imagination of urban future as it cannot be separated from pro-growth agenda in the development. Now that we are facing increasing disasters due to climate change, along with the unprecedented scale of urban poverty and destructions of forests and rural villages in the global south, there have to be alternative ways to live in cities. In this season, a longer one until the end of the year, I have conversations with scholars who have actively been promoting new ways to approach the urban problems and highlighting in their research some genuine innovations. We also talk about different ways of organizing technical and technological matters for water management, in which citizens have more room to participate and help shape the future of their cities. I hope to resonate and echo the spirits carried in these conversations into the city I love, Jakarta. Kota ku Jakarta Kota Metropolitan On this episode, we speak to Anche Stockman. She's a professor of landscape architecture and landscape planning at Haven City Universität Hamburg. Her academic research is centered at the interplays among hydrological dynamics, urban landscape, water governance, as well as the social cultural dynamics in the world of water. Today we talk about waterscape in the city, in what ways it matters for and are affected by the larger social ecological scales, and how we can improve the management and planning of urban water infrastructures. There is some guidance we receive from this conversation, such as a new holistic approach to urban water, taking into account the flow of water not only in its spatial dimension, but also its temporal dimension. We got also some insights to improve education and knowledge accumulation within the urban water sector. 
Perhaps everywhere in the world, most waterways in cities have been culverted and canalized during the 20th century heydays of modernization. Culverts and canals have been prescribed as if they would be the universal solution to the need for organizing water flows in human settlements. What were the reasons for this, for making culverts and canals dominating urban landscape? And what are the implications that we experience today I think that um, the, the challenge about water is that we perceive it both as a, as a resource, but also as a threat. And if we look at the development of, of uh, cities before the 20th century, water was always connected with um, cleaning cities because in historic cities that were not that dense and didn't contain so many people, it was the rainfall that basically washed away all the deposits uh, and the waste from, from, from the streets and pushed it into the rivers. And therefore, it was a means of, of disposal, which, of course, after the cities densified, this principle did not work anymore because through this flushing principle, the cities became completely polluted, which also meant that terrible uh, epidemic plagues were rising. Uh, people became uh, ill and many, many people um, died. And it took quite a long time until people understood that this was due to basically the way they dealt with uh, the water. And therefore, of course, the, the, um, the reason why in the 20th century um, city to, to make culverts and canals, the, the, the basic reason was to get rid of this uh, pollution by transforming an open channel um, a stream, a river, into an infrastructure which is upgraded to discharge polluted water as fast and also as as um, closed as possible and yes that that the response was of course to put the the streams the hydrological systems out of sight to uh, to combine them uh, to combine them with the sewer system into so-called combined sewers and therefore streams basically became sewers and this also meant that the, the, the water and the design of these uh, water systems, they vanished from the interest of architects, also of the rulers and the governments of cities, because it was believed that this way it, it could just be solved by just pushing the water basically out of sight um, and treating it in a system which is called the end of pipe system. <laughs> Basically, you put everything in the pipe within the city, you push it out of the city, and in the very end of the centralized system, you put a water treatment plant where then the problem is solved and the purified water, which of course was a technique that was invented later, is then put back into the into the, the system of the of the streams. So it it there was this disconnection from from yeah from urbanism, the disconnection also from policy making because it was just a technical approach which which was followed as a as a paradigm that came up in the 20th century due to these pollution problems. So we can see that the approach is 
collecting, isolating, and maybe treating. Yes. And then now, like, if you want to put it back into a, a better approach, is there any general model to counter mm-hmm. the fallacy of modernity in urban design and urban planning? Maybe I have to mention a bit some concrete context. For example, Jakarta's precipitation reaches above 700, no, 1,700 millimeters per year, while in Hanover or Hamburg, the annual precipitation level is around 600 or 700 millimeters. Mm-hmm. Hydrological context intersects with then the biological, biogeochemical factors, and even all together make water management more complex because of the intersections with uh, social economic dimensions. What factors tend to be considered priorities for us to attend when designing new policy? Maybe you you could point out also some experiences from your project. The the general paradigm that really changed in the modernity um, approach um, to urban water systems was that we lost this notion of the idea that porous surfaces are important. Uh, We basically sealed the the city completely off to increase the runoff and make it as fast as possible to reach the nearest drain where we put it into that underground um, uh, system. And then uh, it's, of course, a hard conveyance drainage infrastructure. And uh, what we lost both in our mind and also in the appearance of the city are these uh, softer approaches to water management, such as uh, vegetation, the open soil, the ponds, um, um, and also the streams that were not in the past only very narrow channels, but um, breathing uh, systems that could absorb floods when there was a lot of rain, like in the city in Jakarta, and that then become... Uh, and release the water more slowly after rainfall and basically um, also catch that water. And uh, this is, an, is a notion that we, we lost in the, in the modern cities uh, because we, we think a city should be clean. Uh, it's also this idea of clean urbanism where every surface is hard and easy to purify by just washing it and making everything um, uh, flush. When we now think about the specific hydrological context of a city like, for example, Jakarta with this high precipitation, of course, the, um, we need to consider um, what would the landscape look like if the city was, the built city was not there? And um, what are the natural means of a landscape basically to deal with these extremes, to absorb um, as much water as possible? And also to hold it and to to reconsider this idea of yeah our our society's way of life do we disconnect it from water or do we find new approaches to live with water and also to build with water rather than seeing that as completely two separated spheres which has to do, has a spatial component but also it has a lifestyle uh, component if we now talk about the socioeconomic dimension realizing that if the cities grow even bigger and bigger and we see so large surfaces especially with these huge mega cities also in engineering now the engineers have come to an understanding that in in economic terms, to dimension an infrastructure to be able to uh, to accumulate 
such huge uh, rainforest, it's basically not possible uh, to build a purely only technical underground infrastructure. Although we do have so much less rain in Europe, even here with the increasing intensity of strong, strong rain, the failure of these kind of infrastructures become much, much more and have much bigger consequences in terms of economic damage, which cannot be covered anymore by only putting more and more investment into these hard infrastructures. This is an economic uh, threat also to our society. And so I think at the moment we are in a position, and now I come to my own experience because I, I worked a lot in Asia, especially in, in China. Um, and of course, for, for me, uh, with a German background, it was just such an experience to understand this huge growth and um, uh, and also the increasing ceiling of cities in a dimension which is completely cannot be compared uh, to what I uh, know from from Germany. And of course, I mean, in the whole world, we have drained and filled up um, almost 90% of all the world's uh, wetlands, especially, of course, the ones that are in the middle of cities. The, the, the land area that cities takes have increased enormously. And this means that almost no rain in all these sealed surfaces can infiltrate uh, into, into the soil. And um, if at the same time, with climate change and increasing temperature, for each one uh, degree uh, uh, centigrade degree increase of uh, temperature, the atmosphere can hold 7% more uh, water vapor. And when the cloud then bursts into rain, of course, it pours even, even more severely uh, also in countries like in Germany. Um, and therefore, I was part of the movement where in China, and usually it's a reaction to severe damages, where then the policymakers and also um, the technical consultants, they understand that if we talk about the concept of resilience, that we need to find ways to deal with uncertainties. And this is only possible if we develop systems that are more um, flexible and that are not rigid, um, but systems that can regenerate very quickly and that can also use the capacities that are given to us by natural systems basically without any economic cost. Um, because um, these amphibious environments, um, of course, th that's their natural capacity to absorb water, to filter water, to hold water. And um, therefore, in, in the projects that I was involved with in, in China, after the 2012 very, very heavy uh, storms with a lot of losses, President Xi Ping um, announced the nationwide program called um, Sponge City. And that was a term that was created in, in China as a big, big national policy. And the idea was to give water space within the city um, and to rethink the city with all its sealed surfaces as a sponge that has the capacity to basically on the rooftops, on the facades of building in the streetscapes, to absorb water, to hold water, to catch water and to evaporate water rather than making the water rush out. 
And that was a complete paradigm shift, both on the level of governments, on policy, at the same time, of course, on the level of engineering, because it, it needs a new way of collaboration between civil engineers, water engineers, urban designers, landscape planners. And I was very proud to be part of these movement and projects in China, where basically this big budget that was used did not only go into burying huge, enormous pipe, but it went into designing a, a park where there was a river where we worked on the capacity of the river to have different water levels to also flood certain parts of the uh, adjacent uh, park uh, scape um, and um, to enable um, this flooding to take the relief to take the burden from the, the gray infrastructure, which was a double investment. It was an investment into the, the upgrade of the quality of urban environment, while at the same time solving the, the flooding problem and improving biodiversity and ecology in the city. So what we gained also in economic terms was for the same money, a lot more different benefits. And this, I think, this mind shift on the level of policy and on the level then of how to redesign uh, cities for me was very, very impressive experience in, in China. And it became now a worldwide uh, movement that in each country, maybe it has a little bit different names, um, the, the blue-green infrastructure or the low-impact development in the in the US or the, or the water-sensitive um, design in Australia, um, nature-based solutions. It's a big term coined by the European Union, but basically it's all the same idea uh, to go back to nature-based principles and to incorporate them because it saves us a lot of money. So it's it's interesting that you began this conversation in the second question by saying like we can we should try to imagine how would the city look like without the buildings. But now as cities like Jakarta, this 30 million condensed people don't enjoy nature anymore. How then this imagination would possible? I grew up in the beginning of 1980s in Jakarta. I could still see bamboo bushes, uh, banana plants. And so, you know, because I grew up in a settlement called Kampungs, or this is the vernacular settlements, and they call it now informal or slums because then it, it, it goes a densification in different way. But then I also think that restoring kampung is also not sufficient. We cannot just romanticize the past. So then this kind of imagination, I think is, is very strong, uh, strong uh, word that we, we can use, you know, how to imagine a different kind of ways organizing ourselves, our lives, water, our relations to society. So what your previous research and projects could tell us in regards to this kind of strategic interventions that might give big impacts to restore urban water ecosystems? Is it selecting locations? Does it matter? Is it about locations in relation to the physical problems or locations in which active stakeholders actively desiring new ways, you know, like they are the, the, the kind of the, the one who pushes new imaginations and then we start from their location. This is something like probably no, no universal recipe, but I guess experiences could tell. It's really um, difficult to imagine once you have, of course, over many now um, years followed this paradigm of the sealed cities, the urban densification and putting the water underground. Of course, you have overbuilt 
all these kind of sponge qualities of the natural uh, landscape. And therefore, in terms of uh, strategies, I think we need to look at two very different contexts. The one is the projection of the future city growth because the cities are still, uh, of course, growing on, uh, on their fringes and also within the city through densification projects and urban ex expansion, especially in the mega cities all over the world. And of course, if we um, and there are these huge master plans that are being set up by uh, urban planners, architects. And I have been part of these kind of competitions where usually you just erase everything that's there, this small system of streams and canal. Often also the, the soil is filled to a certain um, level to get a certain height, to build dams, to protect that new developments from the threat of the water. And of course, here we can initially, when even doing the, the proposal for these kind of master plans, um, to think about um, the patterns of flooding, uh, how much space would be needed for flooding. And if we calculate that um, within each block, we hold back a certain amount of water through the landscape design of the courtyards, not paving everything, but maybe having a pond that can fill up with water to think about the capacity of the roofs to hold back water. Because if we put green on top of roofs, it can hold back up to 90% of, of uh, rainfall um, here in Germany, I guess, uh, in other heavy, for even when there's more rain, that's of course different. But we need to do these kind of calculations. And in through the policy, we have to give a rule that ha this has to be done. Um, and also these hydraulic calculations need to be part of every kind of master planning and competitions because the, the water engineers, they always suffer from being at the very end of the design process. Firstly, it's all the urban designers uh, putting out the design, which completely ne neglects the hydrological thinking. And then the engineers they have no other chance than putting in the pipes to get the water <laughs> away. So I'm working a lot now on new also methodologies uh, for a design uh, process to include the modeling of the water to hydraulic simulations to include that with, with the, the, the design and uh, to optimize the design through these kind of simulations. And of course, that's for the still to be built parts of the cities but also there i think we need to make big big improvements it's not um, at the moment uh, working uh, very well but then as you say we have the already built city the, the very very dense um a city and here we need to think about what are possibilities in that context where um, we have covered streams by roads uh, we have taken the the water from the above ground to the underground um, are there any possibilities if we look at so for example, new mobility concepts, not to give so much space only to cars, to huge road infrastructure, but maybe think of integrating a part of the flooding by reopening water bodies and also to see the, the green system, the open space system, the parks of the cities that, that also exist to see that 
as a possibility to make it lower, to make it temporarily flooded uh, in the case of a severe flood, to be able to, to have a what we call yeah, a, a multi-level design uh, for a certain space to have a different function in a severe flood compared to in the dry season so that parks can become a flood infrastructure. Uh, if there's a huge storm, um, they can be flooded. But if, uh, if there's no storm, they can be used as normal parks. So we need to think of these time aspect and this multi-dimension uh, strategy. Um, and there have been uh, in Europe many, many discussions about retrofitting, uh, for example, in Copenhagen uh, to design uh, the existing street network and the open space network to become part of the above ground water system to look at how the water in, in the case of emergency can be channeled, can be guided also above the ground um, in a secure way um, and to design all open spaces within the existing uh, city to be part of that water infrastructure. And of course, we cannot take out the buildings, but especially with the, the road infrastructure and the infrastructure of parks and greenways, these need to become part of the hydrological system again. And this is where we also have the chance to, yeah, to, to on, on the policy level, to request that this issue has to be um, incorporated. Yeah, I find it very, very inspiring about in this way, not only for the water, but also enhancing public transport, right? And which is Especially. very, very important, yeah. So you also imply then, okay, um, we need then still a kind of another kind of master planning. Is it also what you're implying that we're then also not losing sight of the bigger scale in a, in a way that it will also give big, big impact, right? Yes. But, yeah. Um, but then this is also related to knowledge, uh, uh, you know, because um, the thing is, you know, I didn't study what we need today to do in the architecture school. And, and I think landscape architecture is, is, is very, very marginal in Indonesia. Apart from, you know, we have this, uh, some faculty like in Bogor, they, they know a lot about botanical systems and about different kinds of plants, which plants would hold water. You know, when, when we as Indonesians, many of us also studied in Europe and many engineers studied in Germany, how, how you see this disciplinary <laughs> disciplines that somehow disconnect also this uh, maybe you you I mean you you you're in the education system also already very long so maybe you can say also something what kind of knowledge should be reproduced within the formal institutions no yeah no definitely I mean and I think of course I'm a landscape architect um, therefore um, I have certainly a, a perspective that incorporates more knowledge about soils and plants and climate compared to someone who studied architecture or uh, urban design uh, however I'm also as a professor not um, educating landscape architects but I'm um, in the university that offers programs in engineering in architecture and in urban design and I I'm incorporating as a landscape architect these issues uh, is tailor-made into these programs because I think it's not needed in terms of design methodology and awareness to be a complete, I don't want architects to become experts in all kinds of planting issues um, 
but it's more on the on the level of conceptualizing an approach where you feel what what do I need to know and what co could be and what contribution is needed in from a water engineer to support my idea and from also a, a landscape architect. And if I teach a, a methodology, which I call the water-sensitive urban design or water-sensitive architecture, of course, it's uh, something that is as important for architects and, and uh, engineers um, as landscape architects to, to be able to relate to the water cycle, to understand the meaning of water, what water cycle basically is, um, to be able to when when you do a design um, to relate that to how does it basically influence the water cycle in terms of the difference um, it makes in uh, from evaporation uh, drainage and infiltration uh, and to optimize your design according to how could I maybe even with a building on top of a site where I overbuilt the existing soil, is there a possibility to have the same relationship between evaporation, drainage and infiltration compared to an unbuilt site? Because it is possible. We have many surfaces that we create through buildings. And if we activate these surfaces to become part of the water cycle and don't just think them as hard surfaces where 100% of water just goes into drainage, we can um, very well work with these kind of numbers and, and use the simulation software to understand the impact. I usually talk about the performance of your design. It's not a performance only to generate the space for people to live in, but it's a performance where you as an architect, basically you design the climate, you design the water cycle, and that's also the impact that you have. Usually it's an unconscious impact because architects are not trained to to consciously design these impacts but this is i think what we need to change in in now uh in what we call the anthropocene realizing that we are collectively geological engineers who influence the climate who influ influence water uh, cycles on a global scale and therefore we need to be, become much more aware and much more responsible and that Uh, relates to all disciplines it's not only i think it's not a problem if there are not so many landscape architects because i think all disciplines need to do that and learn that and be aware of that and learn how to design these performing systems i think it's really really uh, a powerful insight about mainstreaming a <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of um, understanding about the interrelations of uh, social ecological and within ecological uh, components no mm -hmm. Um, maybe I would like to close this conversation by asking um, now we if even if we already have a good concept, a good uh, kind of uh, approach, uh, I think from the engineering side, then still there is a big role of the state and and then I think from the examples, that you have mentioned uh, yeah china also singapore did lots of uh, mm. uh, reform uh, transformations of their urban landscape and they're pretty much state led development mm. no that but copenhagen um well i live in copenhagen for three years and and i know they have done i mean we enjoyed parks a lot i don't know how much though community or neighborhood scale were involved what i understand from the netherlands they try to support activating neighborhood uh, development that you know you really have to take parts because the state cannot do alone mm. and and uh, how, how you observe this kind of dynamics uh, from from your research projects and and Uh, also designing project 
yeah, of course, we need a movement on both levels, on, on the policy, uh, the more centralized level, but also if, if the community um, uh, has a very different lifestyle and philosophy, of course, it would never uh, never work then because it, it's also a change in, in lifestyle, in the experience of how to use a city and also in terms of the feeling of danger, how to deal with a street that becomes temporarily flooded if we have disconnected from this experience and don't know and feel scared and threatened uh, rather than feeling protected knowing that the water only rises to a certain level because then it will overflow and whereas if if we just take it out there might be this uncontrolled flooding which then causes even much more danger although it happens less often but when it happens it's completely dangerous um, and and therefore I think of course the neighborhood um, has a very important role to play however as water systems are very complex interconnected systems, of course, to really have an impact on the water cycle, it needs to be on a larger, uh, larger scale than only the single house or the single quarter and, and neighborhood. And therefore, the, the, the higher policy level um, for water, it's, it's also very, very important because if there is a community that uh, works a lot towards the change of their own water cycle if the surrounding system doesn't take it up or support it it's it's very hard because the water it's always part of a big cycle it's not not a limit uh, limited to a very restricted um, uh, space however i have been also part of projects which came from where we try to connect the, the stakeholders from the city level, government level, with a certain uh, community in a certain quarter to make that a model in terms of water governance and water sensitive urban design and work together where, where the citizens themselves came up with ideas how to redesign their own neighborhood and how to also contribute themselves to this uh, design and uh, then posing these as challenges to the municipality rather than the other way around this top-down approach you like you have to accept now this new plan that we will flood your park <laughs> this sometimes is also not uh, very uh, helpful in terms of political power in democratic systems because if if people don't accept it they will just vote you out basically and um, therefore, we, we have worked with neighborhoods to um, work with them to, to show different opportunities uh, to do these simulations. Then to say there are these kind of choices that could be taken. How would you, from your experience, um, evaluate these different choices and what pathway would you like to push the municipality and then to connect that insights uh, with then the, the municipality coming in and saying, yes, this is how we, we can then also manage uh, and design uh, these systems uh, and to share also the, the um, responsibility, because that's something that also in terms of the cost related to the construction and the management of these systems, this is not mm -hmm. something that the community itself yeah. could do I mean we have tried that in in Peru in informal settlements to build new infrastructure systems together with the community but of course at a certain point it goes beyond the power of what a community itself yeah. can manage and also maintain I think it's really uh, good to to remind us that there are options and yes 
And there has to be a public awareness or literacy about these options. And then mm-hmm. there is then the decision made together. Many, many thanks. We got lots already uh, from you just in a half hour and so. 